Hello, and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion. And this week, I'm joined by Benjamin De La Pena, who's the Chief of Strategy and Innovation at Seattle's Department of Transportation. Now, normally, you know, there's a handful of cities, Los Angeles chief among them, that get all of the love when it comes to this burgeoning revolution of cities pushing back on technology companies to insist on implementing their own standards and their own sort of software approaches to regulating and overseeing our mobility revolution. Um, Seattle has been one that's been on the front lines of this from the very beginning, but has been overshadowed by its various West Coast peers, particularly in the state of California. Uh, and so it's, it's a delight this week to have Benji, as those of us who know him universally call him, uh, on here to talk about his incredibly ambitious plans for Seattle, because Benji from the beginning has been overseeing uh, their various provisions for you know, providing for equity of scooter deployments. Uh, in 2017, they published the New Mobility Playbook, which was really sort of the beginning of cities, uh, you know, sort of insisting to new mobility operators about the terms in which they wanted to be approached. And now he has an even more ambitious plan ahead of even the Open Mobility Foundation, of which Seattle is a member, uh, to try to push this forward. So it's a pleasure to have you on, Benji. Thank you for joining Thanks. us. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be uh, on and uh, great to have a conversation with you, as always. <laughs> uh, whenever we talk, it's just really, really interesting. Well, you're too kind. Well, let's start from the beginning, I guess, from when you joined uh, Seattle DOT. It was a couple of years ago now. I mean, Scott Kubley was the one who originally hired you, and he was still running the department before he went to Lyme and onward from there. And um, and yeah, when you took that job, there was no such thing as a scooter revolution. So what what was the, yeah, what, what inspired you to take that after jobs at Rockefeller and Knight and, and going into government at last? Uh, well, I was looking for the next opportunity after night, and part of what I was thinking was, having come from philanthropy, always having the 40,000-foot uh, view and uh, with its its attendant benefits, right, getting to meet all of these interesting people with interesting ideas and having the leverage to try to push some of those ideas, I was thinking maybe I need to get some application going. And uh, right around that time, I was looking at the Pacific Northwest, uh, reached out to friends in Seattle, including Scott, to see what might what was available. Scott said, well, I'm looking for a deputy. I said, well, I don't have any government uh, experience. She said, well, apply anyway. And so three panel interviews later, they picked me. And so I came here in April of 2017. Uh, but since then have served four mayors and four deputy direct, uh, four directors of transportation, because there's a whole shuffling of leadership. Uh, and then since on moved to uh, this new role of uh, chief of strategy and information, uh, innovation, sorry. So what's what's your master plan here? Let's talk by talking a bit about the uh, the the tip, I guess we would call it, the transportation information infrastructure plan. Which I don't know yeah. has that been published? It's currently circulating. I'm one of a handful of people who've read some early drafts. No, of it's it. not. Yeah. Okay. It's well, still. Then... It... Go ahead. It's still a, it's still a draft, uh, and I don't think we can get to a near final till another month or so, uh, or maybe a month and a half. Uh, Things do take slower. Well, for the for the sake of our listeners, could you talk a bit about it? Because I mean, having having sure. read the draft, it's incredibly ambitious, and I don't want them to take my word for it. Sure, and uh, the short of it is, we need a a plan to how to manage information, uh, and I think the frame. Let me a little bit of the history of it. So when I came, we released the new mobility playbook, uh, which had had been under 
was was written in some form or the other until I came around and we realized this 300-page report that the the consultant we were working with was not going to cut it. We really needed something that was much more uh, adaptable. And uh, in the playbook, we said one of the things we need to do was prepare SDOT. There were five plays in it, and plays three and four were prepare SDOT to manage innovation. And then the other one was create a plug-and-play uh, infrastructure so that whatever would come, because the, the conceit of the playbook was um, we don't know what technology, transportation technology is going to come, but we do know what kind of city we want. And that's what come, has to come first. The city and our desires for the city or the, the citizens' desires for the city has to come first and technology has to adapt because we've seen the opposite before where technology reformats and plans a city. Uh, so that was the thing. And then on on the idea of a plug-and-play, the more we explored this, and like you said, there were no electric kick scooter or shared electric kick scooters at that time. Um, and so who else knows what's coming? It became very clear to me and a number of my colleagues that what it was, what was important was the underlying information infrastructure and ecosystem. Uh, which do I think private players are clearer, right? When you see the layers of, they're all working off Google Maps or Here Now or Mapbox uh, with a kind of locational information, geolocated information of route and points and where have you. Uh, all of that coming together and being put together in different kinds of services. And so what we knew was whatever would be coming, whether it's uh, what are they? What are they calling it? Personal delivery devices. I don't know really what's personal about them, uh, but drones and uh, urban air mobility. All of that would be built around locational information um, and and systems of information about what is moving where and what changes where. Um, and so the transportation information infrastructure plan, as we we thought about it, was our remit is to manage the transportation network in our city, the city of Seattle, and to keep it safe and to make sure it works for everyone. Um, we did not have a plan for the information itself. So we were engaging. So so in the plan, we talk about three types of technologies, right, or innovations, right? There's innovations in um, the mode of transportation. There's innovation in the actual vehicles of transportation. And there's innovation that's going on around information. And by information, how people get information, or information is generated, or how information is analyzed. Departments of transportation are always concerned about uh the first two innovations, and with good reason, right? Because you wake up one day and there are electric kick scooters or autonomous vehicles running in your city. And so you catch up with policies and infrastructure and all of that. So that's with good reason. And we, most departments of transportation are grow up from public works, departments of public works or, or and so we know infrastructure and we know hard the hardware and we also know signals, right? The second, the, rather the third uh, set of innovations, which is around how how people receive information, how people transmit information, how systems receive information and analyze that, um, that it falls by the wayside or is not thought of really well. And yet that's kind of the bedrock of all of this. Um, also, from my own point of view, I'm always thinking about how technological innovations require shifts in institution or institutional innovations. And that's what this is. It's like this is a new 
responsibility and skill set we need to have if we are to fulfill our mandate of making sure that transportation works for everyone and making sure that transportation network is safe. So it's a plan for information. Uh, what is the infrastructure we need to put out? What are the rules in the ecosystem? More importantly, what are the goals, right, that this ecosystem, this infrastructure needs to pursue? Interesting. That's super ambitious, like I said. Um, so I mean, there's a ton to unpack in there. I mean, I guess one place to start is, and let's sort of tying it into uh, the mobility data specification out of LA, because yeah. For years, you and I have chatted about this privately, where you, I think the phrase you've used before is, you know, is like you basically wanted to manage via APIs or, you know, and yeah. plug and play this notion that there would be a software infrastructure that would allow you to just do this. And right. it was hypothetical. And then, you know, Salida and LADOT actually, you know, hired a firm, they designed their own protocol. Uh, Seattle's been an early joiner of this. I'm curious about, you know, is that the first step in a broader revolution that you see? Is that sort of what you envision? I'm, I'm curious about your own participation in the Open Mobility Foundation and sort of how you see that platform growing. What's the step after that and what would you like to build? Well, uh, let me caveat by I'm speaking for myself and not speaking as the agency, right? And so uh, I think it's a first step. I think we're it's still going to evolve, right? Because we're still figuring out the privacy issues around these things. As I think about our own organization, and I don't know how technologically mature LADOT is. Maybe they're very, very mature uh, because of all of the big events that ha have happened there. One of the things that's clear to me, and, and it's changing slowly, is that... Uh, we can ask for the data, we don't actually have the systems that can pull and maximize our use of that data. Uh, even on top of all of the PRA, public records rules on it, and privacy and surveillance rules, um, we have yet to set up the infrastructure for receiving this data. And and, and it, right now what we get them is as large files, right, on regular basis. And so we analyze and we use it for planning and we really need it for that. Uh, but if you were going to imagine that it was a constant feed of some sort, um, we don't have yet uh, put together the systems on our side of the fence that receives this, much less the systems on our side of the fence that are pushing that information out that other players, other actors in the systems would need. I think we're making those steps there. Um, uh, Kelly Rula, who is in our new mobility team and 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 uh, our streets, uh, our GIS people uh, and our Seattle IT produced a road closure API that we tested early this year and it's out there and it's being used by uh, the map service providers. And I think there's going to be more of that. And in fact, in the the TIIP, the Transportation Information Infrastructure Plan, um, one of the initiatives is to develop an API strategy uh, for SDOT as a critical service. And that means that it's not just MDS, there may be other APIs, and it might be that MDS evolves, right? So part of the approach we did was to look at the users and what information they may need. The, then the functions and players that provided that information and what did they need. Um, so for instance, it, it, it's clear that our traffic and operations people don't really need telematics of every individual vehicle um, unless there was some sort of case at, uh, attached to that. What they need is flow and volume. Uh, on particular arterials, right? And so so then that's kind of the ask. And right now, there's no API that is specifically about that coming out of the providers and also no API from us that kind of meets up with this kinds of data. So, uh, sorry, this is a long 
answer to yes, it's I think one step, but if it'll continually evolve, uh, at least we have moved beyond the previous conversation of give us your data, we can't give you that data, which part of that data, all of the data, and then a kind of a back and forth of trying to figure out who gets what. This ecosystem uh, is starting to build up. And the reason we have a plan is to ask not just the practical, we will get to the practical issues in operational and implementational plans, but to ask why, what are we trying to get done towards what goals? Yeah, yeah that's a very elegant way of putting it there in terms of that, 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 that push and pull and ongoing debate. Yeah. Well, as part of that debate, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up, and I've, you know, I've had this with Robin Chase, among others, and you know, if you go on Twitter at any given moment, you could see ongoing debates about some of the privacy yes. aspects. Um, but you know, one of one of the one of the challenges or one of the you know retorts from the from the critical camp is that you know why don't you take the data and put it in the hands of a third party that's more reliable? Why does government have to do it? Um, and you right. sort of had an early experiment in that that I would say was probably not that successful, right? With the University of Washington, with UW oh, going to be the yeah. repository. Yeah. Um, can you talk briefly a bit about why that didn't work? Have being held in a university? I mean, there was a plan earlier by by the SFMTA to have Berkeley right. do it with Susan Shaheen's group right, that right, never right, took right. off. So right, yeah, right. so what, what's the flaw in that argument? Uh, there were, I think there were three critical flaws. One was that uh, it was premised on a third party like a university being able to protect that data and say that for some legal reason, then it was, it was protected and people couldn't ask for it. Uh, the legal opinion of both uh, lawyers we consulted from the state and our own lawyers in the city was, no, if, it, uh, if it's data we ask for, or if it's data that's being held with a, uh, someone that we have a contract with and it involves something we ask for, that is still publicly requestable. So it was kind of this fussy side, right? Um, because it could be, and it wasn't clear whether it could or not, it was just that our lawyers felt that it, it you didn't have a slam dunk defense of it. Then, um, then you couldn't go ask, uh, you couldn't attract the private providers to say, put all your data there because their first assurance would be, well, we want uh, business uh, important data protected, right? Uh, what's our what's our defense of if someone requests for those records? So I think that's where it falls. And then um, it's also this, this idea that of collecting all of that information. And it's interesting that it's the universities who uh, came forward, right, as partners, or we requested as partners, because it's a whole pool of research that could happen. Um, and, and I think that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is there really just has to be this ecosystem of information that needs to be exchanged, but very clear, uh, uh, clear what needs to be exchanged for what purpose. Um, and that might be that it then then you avoid this whole issue of certain records that are that has privacy or business issues uh, being able to be pulled through records requests uh, and 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 sunshine laws. So sorry, long answer again to to why again this is part of an exploration of continuous exploration of the models around this ecosystem um, that. Seattle and the rest of the cities around the world are going to have to pursue. What's interesting is the space is how um, it's becoming more organized um, on either side. It used to be that uh, the TNCs were attacking it on a city-by-city -city basis, and then the cities got organized first under NACTO and also now under OMF and are presenting kind of this, this united front. 
and then there's more organiz- uh, negotiation going on, and now the TNCs are moving up to state level, so on and so forth. So it's interesting how all of this, uh, how the game is shaping up. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's fascinating. I, I actually proposed the theme for this year's Commotion LA be the city strike back until it was pointed out the partners might not like that very much. But, <laughs> but there you go. But but that's exactly what we're seeing happening. Um, well, in that, re- in that regard, I'm curious. You know, you I'm watching from afar. I mean, you're up there in Seattle watching. You know, the uh, you know in, in the California legislature. You know, AB eleven twelve. Uh, the yeah. questions about privacy. Um, what do you expect is going to be the reaction when you know when this plan formally rolls out? Do you expect the same sort of set of um, you know privacy watchdogs and you know corporate partners, uh, you know perhaps come after you and argue that you know you simply don't have this ability as a regulator to institute this kind of shift, or do you think that battle's already been fought and is already being decided? Well, what we do like to get to the with the the transportation information infrastructure plan. I know it's long, but I hate acronyms because we're full of it in government. But okay, the tip uh, is that we set uh, the the principles around privacy and surveillance, right? So Seattle has very strong rules on data privacy and surveillance, um, and so we hope that answers that. And by saying what kind of information is needed for what purpose, then uh, we are two steps into saying uh, why we need an exchange of information and with a layer of what needs to be protected, right? So uh, I, this is me speaking, not the agency, uh, do I really need the telematics of where a scooter has gone um, in real time or do I need origin and destination uh, aggregated to a certain level so I can plan around it? And do I need a real-time location of available um not who's used it, but what can be used, so that then I can feed it into my system and feed it into other systems, right? So, so part of I think uh, the I don't want to call it a defense, but the structure is that we have good reasons now we've set up according to these goals of why we need particular types of information because of either a planning function or a traffic uh, management or transportation management function or a maintenance function and whatever else. So it's connected to the functionalities that. Uh, are our roles in the system? Interesting. So let's so let's fast forward here and assume that all of this is built and it builds out. And you mentioned earlier, yeah. you know that yeah, that this will be accompanied or needs to be accompanied by a shift in institutional innovation. Gabe, yes. Gabe yeah. Klein and others have talked for years that you know that yeah, the transit agencies and DOTs need to become. Uh, not operators, but mobility managers. So, yeah. you know, this is also part of your remit. I, you know, I know you're sort of in charge of of trying to basically uh, make make your department leaner and meaner, so to speak. Um, yeah. How do you imagine that? What is what is the DOT? What does SDOT of the future look like once this platform is in place? Well, let's start from practical to something bigger, right? So, in terms of practical skills, uh, most DOTs and most government agencies are built on uh, their data is built on GIS. Right, with geographic and, and particularly S3 GIS, right? So we all, I probably have in our agency maybe 100, 150 people know how to use ArcGIS and maybe 30 to 50 people who are experts in building stuff in ArcGIS. Um, and yet you look at the other side of the fence, right? If you look at the map service providers, the TNCs, everyone else, they're not building those systems on GIS, right? They're building them on web-based maps. Totally. Uh, and writing them in Python and R and whatever, what have you, right? And so you have this language problem that is also an informational flow problem. So, for instance, our parking, uh, our parking um, 
the unit, right? Care, uh, uh, gathers a whole lot. Of, we, we've got a pretty good, uh, one of the best best parking uh, uh, teams in the country with good, uh, very shopista approaches to parking. And we've, we've done a lot of technological changes. We have like three billion lines of information just on one data set. Um, in order for us to, so we have, we have, parking payment providers in order for us to give our parking payment provider um, the new rules when we change the rules of where you can park or the time and all that we give them uh, a large data set partly js partly just a database it takes them on average six months to process that so that they can get it into their system and show it in their maps and actually that's a function of translation so what it could look like is if we start uh, uh, translating our data and authoring our data and, and really deciding what needs to be static and it sits in GIS and what is active. So therefore it needs to be on something that is much more web map oriented. Maybe that's a smoother flow and that we can get to where in the same day we say, okay, no parking on that street. We'll switch it on. The regulations go out and the curb knows about it and the vehicle knows about it, right? And maybe the signs know about it. Uh, to, to get that information flow done, then you have to lift these bottlenecks. There's the whole the skill set, uh, which I went talked about, who knows GIS. If I I think I have, if I'm lucky or we're lucky, maybe we have two or three people who can code in Python, uh, and no one else. So the the analogy I have is, we have a shop, and this is not just us, but probably most DOTs uh, in the country, uh, a shop where everyone speaks Esperanto. Uh, and we know how to speak Esperanto, and we train people to speak Esperanto. The rest of the world does not speak Esperanto, so we have to go translate when we're talking to them, uh, and there are words that we have that they don't have and words they have that we don't have that we have to go wave our hands to try to get uh, information through. So we need to shift both the technical skills and gain technical skills, create platforms internally that can again readily talk to these systems, and that's starting to happen, right? And, and at the same time, set rules around it. So, so there's a growth in skill set. There's a growth of responsibility. One of the things we propose is an information delivery unit uh, whose main job is to figure out what are the APIs we need to be pushing at the same time. If there's APIs we're asking for, how do they shape that? Yeah, well, fascinating. I say I don't think I don't think the uh, I don't think cities have been well served by you know by the uh, you know incomprehensible programmer dialects of the very large companies that barge into cities without knowing what cities are about either. So it's interesting to think Absolutely. about this as a Habermasian language problem, uh, yes. as it always is. Um, yes, yes, perfect yes. speech and all that. Um, all right. Well, so we talked we talked a ton about data, and we're already starting to run low on time. So I want to talk a little bit on the time we have left here about also some of the other uh, fascinating innovations happening in Seattle. Because in addition to everything you're doing, there is of course the fact that Seattle is one of a very small number of cities in the United States that actually is growing its transit ridership, and you guys yes. are doing that through great blocking and tackling as well. One thing I was hoping you could talk a bit about and imagining the sort of future of this is, is also dynamic lanes, right? Um, you yep. know, already the city is really successful with doing transit-only lanes, shifting those around at peak hours. We can imagine how that inter will intersect with the data when you're able to basically push new rules to that. So um, you know, how do you imagine building out the success of some of these, you know, fairly standard innovations that are working so well? Uh, well, uh, true. I mean, well, again, basic. We're trying, trying to expand our red uh, lanes, right, so that we can provide more for more for our buses. Uh, and whatever technology comes after that will be built on this 
what are the goals of the system and how are we trying to prioritize them? Sorry, I, I'm a planner, so I tend to talk at the level of of, of goals and, 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 and values. Uh, we are currently working through a transit vision, right? So we've, we've gained uh, quite a bit in terms of accomplishments, uh, largely because we have uh, a levy, the Seattle Transportation Benefit District, that allows us to buy more bus service. And that has allowed us to increase frequency and provide better service. Um, so we've built out the infrastructure uh, with, and, and hope to build that, that further with more red lanes everywhere and, and, and better services. Uh, also the information layer of it. So right now as other cities, the best thing we have is that you have an app that tells you based on GTFS, right? When the next bus is coming, that could be further improved with, uh, the, with, with help from our partners, King County Metro uh, on just much more uh, uh, fine-grained location data uh, also, how full is the bus? So one of the things that's interesting is we know when a bus is full, we don't know how many people are left all right? So in a bus stop. And so so more of that information flow of what's actually going on, um, then that probably, hopefully, will lead us to more technological in innovations that allow us to uh, respond quickly to the, the situation as it arises. I mean, you're, you're stuck with both. Um, how people use the system and their habits around it, and your ability to respond to changing things in the uh, in the in the physical landscape. Uh, and so, for instance, if a uh, there's a stall in a particular bus lane or a street, uh, mostly people have to figure out where did the bus get rerouted, and we want to get to where people know exactly where it's rerouted, which particular bus they have. Uh, and a lot of the things we did in the transportation information infrastructure plan in drafting it was looking at user needs and user stories so that we can then identify where this information is needed. Uh, I think that once we start building up that information infrastructure, then the, uh, the further technological um, improvements will build on top of it. That's why we call it the information infrastructure plan. Um, uh, LA likes calling it code is the new concrete. We like saying information is the new infrastructure. <laughs> Nice, a West Coast versus West Coast battle there. Yeah, <laughs> um, Point, you know, middle versus north. So exactly. Well, one thing I, I want to touch upon, I mentioned at the top of the podcast, but um, you know that um, Seattle was really led the way when the whole micromobility revolution started about sort of demanding yeah. at least equity provisions. Um, how has it yeah. evolved since you know Lyme, which is in your backyard, and some of the others? Um, have come in and, you know, in terms of how you manage that, I mean, obviously that's one of the major reasons for MDS. Um, but I'm curious yeah. from a policy standpoint, how has it evolved in terms of, um, you know, increasing nuance and subtlety and thinking about how they should be deployed to neighborhoods that are transit deserts? Right. So it was, it, it was one of the interesting things about the micro mobility, you know, bike shares and how that progressed. Um, if you recall what happened in Seattle was we tried docked bike shares, it tanked for uh, uh, business uh, structure reasons. And then because we had to close down our um, our docked bike shares and dockless bike shares came around, we were one of the first cities to permit it, right? And when we permitted it, we said, okay, there has to be equity targets. What was interesting was the targets of serving particular communities um, for equity reasons in the docked program were achieved in the dockless program because the dock program was waiting to where do we release and where do we put the docks. 
And what happened in the the um, Dockless program was it was so easy to use. It was showing up in the neighborhoods used by kids in the places we wanted them used. And the private companies themselves figured out ways for people to pay without credit cards, right? So that was all interesting. Um, what it is, though, was... Um, which is the next equity uh, line for us is, well, how, did, how is the pricing on this thing going, right? Because a, a number of the companies were pricing it low to capture market. What happens when people get dependent on it and then they, and or you get, heaven forbid, monopolies, right? And particular communities are hurt because you raise prices. So I think that our thinking has shifted, has evolved on what are the equity issues we need to be uh, addressing up, um, over and above just the geographic availability, right? Uh, equity issues on protections too, if there was a, a, a complaint I needed to put forward, right? How do you do that? And one of the things we released last year was this piece on medium on, do you need a bill of rights for new mobility? Uh, and that has guided us too. But uh, at the core of Seattle, and the Seattle process really is talking to our community. So as we are gearing up for uh, the pilot of e-scooters, and we're a little late in the game on that one, but we've got it controlled, right, is to really work with the community to say what's the most important thing we're looking out for and that they need to fulfill. Um, because that's at the core of equity is talking to the people who are really affected by it. Yeah. And making sure they count. Yeah. Um, well, we're almost out of time, so I have one last question okay. for you. And again, this sort of broad sweep here of some of the broader issues. One of the other things I've been thinking about is, is the fact that you know there's this whole movement now. We're seeing you know um, you know uh, cities rolling back parking minimums like San Francisco, and and um, and also sort of the whole how do we battle the housing crisis? We're seeing uh, you know Minneapolis and the entire state of Oregon have rolled back single-family zoning. Um, again, Seattle was a sort of an early leader in this, with you know sort of uh, banning parking minimums in its urban yep. villages and urban centers. And I've been reading as of late that, yeah, that Seattle basically has had a residential building boom and that rents have started to cool. It appears to be yes. a superstar city that there's some promising signs that it might have a grip on some of affordability. I'm curious what you've seen of any evidence of the interplay between those two. You know, we always hear this lament that the transportation people and the real estate people are never at the same table for the same conversation. Uh, I'm curious if you're having that conversation now in Seattle or, or where you sort of see how these two are connected. Oh, well, here's another history lessons of, of success, right? So uh, Seattle successfully put together a growth control plan in the 90s that concentrated its development in 13 areas that were called urban centers or urban villages. And that's where 80 plus percent of the growth has happened, right? So it's a lot of taller buildings. What the inverse of what that did was, of course, large areas became single family only. And the fight in Seattle over the last decade or so, uh, or a little less than a decade, was to increase densities in these areas uh, with an affordability plan. Uh, and there's been back and forth and, 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 and lawsuits and all that. I think the city's able to move forward on it, though. So... Um, what it is, what's interesting is we were successful in constraining growth in particular areas because we were looking at a particular growth model. And then the city grew faster than that. And now you're looking at single family and looking not just at the growth, but looking at uh, the climate crisis and saying, well, you know, this is not sustainable. We need to figure this out. And we also realized that there were serious equity issues that were happening because of this restriction on single family that were put in in uh, earlier decades to protect 
uh, particular uh, populations or we thought they were doing it. So it, I think what's interesting is the kind of uh, growth and response to success in particular things, failures in particular things. But it really is that, um, for instance, that the, the, the concentrating growth in these areas allowed us to serve those areas better with transit, right? So because there was a density, but now uh, we know we need to densify in more areas in the city. Um, and 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 we will have those parking conversations as they come forward. We've successfully, uh, the city has now gotten used to parking uh, uh, rates changing depending on time or location and all of that. And so I think it's on a good trajectory and uh, hopefully can build further on that, um, both in terms of the provision of transit, uh, getting kind of sustainable funding around transit where we've been studying congestion uh, and congestion pricing and and at the same time going through what we're calling the Seattle squeeze, right? This intense development that's, we tore down a viaduct, we opened the tunnel, we're gonna toll that tunnel, so, so on and so forth. And it's not just the work of SDOT, but all of our partners in the, in the region. Um, so there's more growth and more constraints and then how do you manage streets around that and then all of this technology coming in. So uh, I think we're in a, heading in a good direction and hopefully the more we set out the goals, the more we can be guided by it and not just reacting, not just be reacting. Yeah, well, I would say it's great to see Seattle leading on this because this is that's exactly the kind of, you know, uh, catalytic, you know, feedback loop that I think California hopes to see with bills like SB 50, you know, and the attempt, yep. you know, massively upzoning along transit and trying to basically, yeah, funnel growth where you can better serve it through sustainable mode. So yep. it's glad yep. to see it's working somewhere. Um, well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Benji. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, it's been really interesting to hear your, your efforts on this. When, when do you think the, uh, the tip, the tip of the spear, as I'm thinking of it in my head now, uh, <laughs> will be published and, um, yeah, and out there for broader commentary? We're, we're hoping towards late October. Uh, of course, give, take that with a grain of salt because there are hoops to jump through uh, in the city and in the department. Uh, but in some form or the other, we might be able to get uh, a more publicly accessible draft uh, by the end of the, the, of the next month. Well, great. Well, we have you confirmed as one of our first speakers for Commotion LA, so I look forward to grilling you about it. Excited about it. Thank you so much, Greg. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Benji. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us uh, for another installment of the Commotion Podcast. We'll, we will be back soon uh, with another, uh, another episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye.